0: Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Josh, if you come up, I'll pray with you. Dear Holy Father, as uh, pray for my brother Josh now, as he um, as he opens up um, th- this amazing passage of Scripture that um, just professes so greatly your love for us. I, I pray your love on him, your Spirit on him, right now as he as he uh, as he teaches us, Lord, that same Spirit, your same Spirit, to work in our hearts, to open ourselves to hearing your Word, and to um, allow ourselves to be transformed by it. Uh, we lift up this time to you in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
1: <clears throat> so working at a bank, I have this pl- privilege, I think it is, and it's a joy for me Um to be able to help people with their finances. Um, it happens all the time that somebody comes in and needs help figuring something out in their checkbook or whatever um, or just figuring out budgeting stuff. And so I get to do that. I get to help people, and I get to offer them tips all the time, little things that they they may not have been aware, and they're trying to buy a house for the first time. And, and I can kind of like, oh, I didn't know that. You know, and the light bulb goes on, and I love those little moments of my day. Maybe they're buying a car or a house or... Um, something some detail they didn't know about insurances and I give them I gave them something they didn't have and they're like "Ooh, I'm excited now I now I have knowledge that I can go act on and it's going to benefit me so I love that one of my favorite ways to do that is like with the credit card rewards I'll start talking to somebody about hey did you know that if you sign up for this card you get these rewards and they just get all excited and anyway it's a lot of fun for me Because I deal with that all the time, and I deal with a lot of grumpy people all the time, because money touches everything, and grumpy people have money too. And so they come in, and they complain. So those little moments are highlights for me. And there was this one time when I had this guy in my office. Um, He was a mechanic, and he was in Columbia, and that's where I was working at the time. And he came in, and he had this problem um, where he regularly overdrafted his account, Okay, and if you know what an overdraft is, right? That's what you got 0 and then below 0. <laughs> and every time you go below 0, you get a fee. And at the time I think the bank was charging like 35 bucks a fee or an overdraft, which I don't know about you, but that's kind of frustrating for me. So like if I got one, I'd be pretty upset. Um, this guy didn't have one. He had over the last 12 months or so about 150. You do the math. 150 overdrafts. Times 35 bucks. It's a, yeah, he says a lot. It's actually about 5,000 plus dollars in a year's time. He had given the bank 5,000 dollars that he was not obligated to give them. Now, if that doesn't make you just a little bit sick to your stomach and make you want to like pull out your phone and just double check that you're not too close to zero right now, it should. And so this was where he lived. This guy regularly would overdraft. And so I pulled him in my office, and I'm thinking I'm about to help this guy out. I'm about to do this man uh, like a true solid. I'm going to help him know what he's regularly doing so he can save money, which is like maybe the two greatest words in my wife's vocabulary. I saved money today. Like it's her favorite thing to do. And I start telling him. I turn my screen around, and I say, listen, you see that number, 150, whatever, times 35, and I pull up my calculator, and I just did the math for him, and I'm like, that's how much you've given the bank unnecessarily this year. You would think, in that moment, that he would look at me and he'd be like, help me do whatever I can do to never do that again. That he would just be like, so like, eager to learn and to to put the proper boundaries on his finances to never let that occur. But he was not. He looked me in the eyes with kind of a fear, kind of a frustration, but just, why are you telling me this? Like, I don't want to know this. I would rather have not known that information and gone on about my business just giving you the money. Now I know, now I'm aware that I'm giving the money away for nothing, and it's frustrating. And I'm thinking, you're not connecting the dots. I can help you. You're just frustrated that you've done this. He wanted to keep on doing what he was doing, making no changes, and go on oblivious, to the consequences. Doesn't make any sense, but that's what he wanted. And, Cars, I think it is very possible to go on oblivious to the consequences of our own sin for a time, just like this guy. I think it's okay, not okay, but I mean, I think it's possible for us to do that for a season, for a short while. But eventually, the effects of our sin and the sin around us catch up to us. They hurt us. They expose us. We feel the pain of broken relationships all the time. We feel the loss of loved ones when someone dies. That affects us. The sin in us and the sin around us eventually catches up to us, and it affects us. We have been dramatically affected, and we can't even, internally ignore the consequences of that. For those of us, though, in Christ, we have a hope. We have new life. And, cars. what I want us to see from today's passage is that we have been made alive. We're going to spend the next three weeks in these ten verses, and we're going to talk about a different aspect of the different verses, and I'm going to look at the first five of them. We read the ten, but I'm going to read the first five and preach those to you, and the focus today is that we have been made alive. And so today, I want to talk about what it means and what the implications are of the fact that we've been made alive. What does that have to do with us today? And then um, next week, um, I think Josh Pugsley and then Richie will continue in this passage for us. Let's pray and just ask that God would expose our hearts, open our hearts to understand what he has for us in his word this morning. Lord, we do not want to be like the mechanic who ignored and wanted to live in obliviousness to his folly, his foolishness. We want to be aware of the hope we have and let it dramatically affect our day. So remind us of our hope this morning. And help us see with clarity how we can live in light of that hope. We pray that in your name. Amen. So just a reminder, Ephesians letter by Paul while he's in prison written to the Gentiles, which is non-Jews, okay? He's written to them about, because he's heard of their faith, he's excited about their faith, and he wants to remind them, hey, you're sharing now in all the spiritual blessings of God's people, okay? And you have an inheritance. And we just got through chapter one where he's talking about this great inheritance that they're going to receive. So he's pumped for them, and he says, you have a share in that inheritance because of one thing, your faith in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. You believe in him. So the passage we're talking about today, Paul's starting to get into this timeline. He wants to give them a chronology of what has happened to them before and what has happened to them since Jesus. So before Jesus and since Jesus. And so what we're going to walk through today is this timeline of sorts. And the very first thing I want you to see from this timeline is this. The past was bleak. Our past was bleak, okay? Verse one says, "We were dead in our sin." And and uh, I didn't ask uh, you to do this, but if you keep going back to that passage and just leave it up there for us, we were dead in our sin. He says in verse one. What does that even mean? What does it mean that I was dead? When I'm alive, I'm alive. But I, what do you mean I was dead? Right? We were dead to the things of God. We were dead spiritually. Our spirit was dead. We did not care about the things of God, and we were unable to please God. Now, that may not mean anything at this point. It may not matter to you at this point, but we were unable to please God. We did not care about the things of God. So hold on to that knowledge. I want you to track with you through this verse, or this passage. This passage says, not only were we dead to our sin, but verse 2 says, we were led by Satan. What does it say? In which you once walked following the course of, of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience we were following satan so we had this deadness in our soul and we were led by the enemy the reality is that we are always submitting to something whether you know that or not you are always submitting to something okay that's true and and you just we live our lives following somebody Submitting is maybe a word that we don't like in our culture, but it, it means to follow, right? It means to obey. And so we're always obeying something, whether it's our own desires or, uh, you know, our government authorities. At any given moment, we are submitting to something, okay? And at the point at which we were not following Jesus, so if this is the point we're following Jesus, before that, we're following Satan, which is, like, not intuitive, because nobody in here has probably got, like, a stack of, like, old, like, satanic literature that they were, you know, or something that they were, like, you know, reading and resourcing while they're, you know. The, I, what, I, what Paul is saying is that our spirits were dead. We were unable to please God. That means we were f- seeking to please something else. We were led by something else. And whether you knew it or not, you were following Satan. You were led by him. He, he's subtle. He's, he's an influencer. But he was leading you, and you didn't know it. We were submitting to the leadership of Satan. And what did that look like? What did it look like to follow Satan? Verse 3 tells us. We were self-centered. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He's saying to follow Satan is in essence selfishness. You were serving your own desires. You lived solely to gratify your own desires. Well, you know, I'm not totally inherently selfish. I'm not just constantly not thinking about other people. I care about my kids. I care about the city I live in, you know, maybe. But inherently, Paul's saying that our souls were dead to God. We were not seeking to please God. We didn't care a thing about God prior to Christ and our faith in him. And that at the base desire of everything we were doing was the selfishness, both of body and mind. My wife jokingly says this phrase, in our home, on a regular basis, I do what I want. I do what I want. And she says that to me whenever I ask her, hey, why are you doing that a certain way? And it doesn't make sense to me. She's like, I do what I want. And, like, and she just throws that out like it's just a silly little thing. And it is, and because we just, you know, no, no harm, no foul. But truthfully, think about what it would be like if the world was solely living doing that. I do what I want. But with a, with a craving and a passion Not based on anything, not basing any of their decision-making on whether it's good for them or good for those around them, just solely for self. Imagine what that would be like for a second. Someone asks you to help them, like, move into a new apartment or a new house. And you're thinking to yourself, I'll do what I want. I'm sorry, I'm just, I got, I'm too busy this weekend. And you're like, all you got scheduled is, like, pretty much nap time or, uh, you know, surf in Facebook or, playing call of duty or whatever you know it's just i do what i want mentality so you don't start serving others you imagine what it would be like driving on the freeway or you guys call them highways out here but uh you know in west coast we call them freeways but you you know you you're just driving around and i do what i want you're just cutting people off left and right we'd be th- our cars would be banged up much more you know what about in the office in the workplace Maybe you laugh at each other's jokes or, you, or ladies' groups, right? You laugh and, you, and you, you, you socialize, but then behind each other's backs, you're just cutting down. You're tearing each other down. And maybe in, in the place of business, when you have the opportunity to jump somebody by putting them down, you do that behind their back, right? Gossip, backstabbing. What about marriage? How would that affect marriage if you just did what you wanted exclusively? Exclusively. Tons of tensions Unresolved conflicts, never getting to the heart of, of why do I keep offending one another because we don't care that we offended. I just care that you stop offending me. so do what I want. Most people get married with that mentality, right? I love you love me and I love me, and so this is great, you know, right? That you're gonna continue to perpetuate what I really already want It's a dangerous way to live. Always living with the mentality of, I do what I want. I do what I want. Living, and this is what I want you to get, living selfishly is in essence making decisions with no consideration to what honors God. Living selfishly is in essence making decisions with no consideration of what honors God. At minimum, we would say, if a child was that way or, or a teenager was that way, we would say, they are so spoiled. They only care about what they want. That's what we would say at minimum. But on a deeper level, in a biblical sense, Paul is saying, that mentality reflects a Satan-like quality, a Satan-led quality. To live self-centered is to live influenced by Satan. Satan. And it really resembles the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? Um, They disregarded God's word. He said, don't do this. And they disregard that and listen to Satan's words because of what it would benefit them. In essence, when we're selfish, we're just reflecting a follower of Satan in a moment, in an instance. And what happens? Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, we must be punished. Sin, selfishness, the following of Satan, all that prior to Christ, all of that incur, er, er, culminated in was the punishment, the wrath of God. And that's what we see in verse 3. We, that resonates right with what he says in Romans chapter 3, which will be on the screen. Um, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's right in line with this idea that every single one of us, he's not just saying Jews, he's not just saying Gentiles, he's saying every single one of us. So you, me, uh, 2,000-year-old individuals, 4,000-year-old, everyone that has ever lived, minus Christ, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed what it means to obey him in perfection. And God has a hatred for sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, You who are of pure eyes, speaking of God, are pure pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at it. Maybe that reads a little better. Okay, the version I memorized when I was a kid was actually a little easier to read. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In other words, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. I cannot even tolerate sin. So that's speaking of God and, and, I, and, and Habakkuk is speaking as a prophet to God your, your two eyes are too pure to even look at sin you can't tolerate it you can't have it in your presence so what does he do with it Romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death what we earn as a result of our sin the wage we earn is punishment God's wrath The past was indeed bleak. If you if you don't catch what Scripture is saying here, we were spiritually dead because of our sin. We were led by Satan. Selfishness was our our mo, and eternal punishment was the only thing we had to look forward to. We like to think of ourselves as better than others, right? We like to ask we we ask questions. We're like, you know, why do good things happen to bad, or why do bad things happen to good people? Why does that happen? Right? Because we don't think of ourselves in that. biblical sense as a bad person as a selfish person as an innately follower born following satan we don't think of ourselves in that sense why do bad things happen to us good people and really the only reference we have is when we compare ourselves to someone we think is lower than us because i'm a good person and they're a bad person i understand why bad things happen to that person because they're a jerk but me i'm a good person so why does bad stuff happen to me the more biblical question would be why does god bless bad people Why is God good to us who are innately selfish? Why does he do that? And the only thing that it should produce in us when we consider our old situation is humility. We had nothing making us deserving of God's grace, of his salvation. So we should have humility. We had nothing in us that we could say makes us better than anyone else, right? Because he says all have sinned. We were in a true state of helplessness and God came in and rescued us. So humility is the only possible response. We can only look around and say, I'm not better than anyone. I can't look around, I can't walk around at work or, or, and be offended by somebody and start to think, oh, I just deserve better. It's like, no, actually, like I was in the exact same boat, selfish. Humility should be the response when we realize our situation, what it was. And the only solution for the state we were in, according to Paul, is that we would be born again. That we would be born again. And so here we go, right? Let's you, you take a time warp back to the 1970s and the born again movement. You're like, what does that mean when people say I was born again? Like, that's so weird, right? Well, let's we'll get into that. But for those who, of us who have trusted in Jesus, I want you to see our past was bleak but our present is joyous. Our present is joyous. Look at verse four with me. The first thing I want you to see is that God intervened for us. The two most significant words in the passage are but God. He intervenes. So there was this bleak past. You're following Satan. You're dead to God. Your spirit is dead. You're incurring God's wrath. You're a child of wrath. But God. But God what? Tell me. I want to know, right? But God what? The situation... In this passage is being seismically shifted okay our situation is seismically shifted the condition of our soul has been shifted and the contrast is found in but god verse four says god's character motivated him to save us to rescue us his his specific character of his mercy what does it mean his mercy well that's sparing you from what you deserve To be merciful is to not give you what you deserve. What did we deserve in our past state? God's wrath. But he spares that. He is merciful. It says he was motivated by love. God does something for us. His love for us motivates him. And then in verse 5, what happens? We go from death to life. From death, by his mercy and love, we are made alive. Theologians refer to this idea of being made alive, right, as regeneration, okay? It's it's a theological word being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life only by God and by God alone. And so nothing we do gives ourselves this regeneration. God is the one, right? You see it. You see glimpses of this in the the history of the Bible. Adam, he just makes him out of clay. He's lifeless, and he breathes life into him he regenerates he generates life into him but we were spiritually dead and he brings life to us so the verse five is the final result we now have salvation by his grace grace is the giving uh, of something we don't deserve if mercy is preventing something we do deserve god's wrath the grace is the giving us of something we don't deserve the salvation We are saved from death, from Satan's rule, from our life of slavery to selfishness. The only thing we did deserve was God's wrath, but now we are given life. Often we think of God as wrathful, right? Don't we? We think of God in that way. Most of our friends think of him as like this angry guy, right? And you see God's terrible anger in this passage. People damned to hell, right, deserving of eternal punishment, you see that. But you also, in the exact same passage, see something other of God. You see his mercy, his love, his grace. How can he be such a wrathful God but be described as merciful and loving and gracious? Because he's just. He still punishes the sin that his wrath should be put on, but he just puts it on Jesus instead of on us. And so that's why he says, when you trusted Jesus, you were made alive. It's not like God just said, I'm going to stop being just today. I'm just going to like pardon everybody, but I'm just going to take the day off from being an angry guy. No, he never changes his character. He's wrathful, he's just, and he's loving and gracious, and he places the wrath on his son instead of us. So follow the logic with me. We've been talking about all the blessings we have by in chapter 1 in Christ, all the blessings that we as followers of Jesus incur because we are now in Christ. And why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is what raises us from the dead. We've been given the same new life by the same powerful God that raised Jesus from the dead. In John 3, Jesus starts talking to this Pharisee. He was one of the ruling Pharisees, a pretty significant guy. And he, uh, he interacts with him, and the guy was like, you know, he, he approaches Jesus, and he, he wants to, like, kind of talk to him about spiritual life and eternal life. And so turn with me real quick to John chapter 3, It'll, if it's not on the screen for you. And I'm just going to read to you Jesus' words to him. just in verses 1 to 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this guy's high up, okay? The man came to Jesus by night, so he traveled a distance, right? And said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher from, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we talk about heaven a lot, and that's fine. That's, I don't think that's an unbiblical word, but the idea of ushering in the kingdom of God, like heaven, we think of it sometimes as the place like our dogs go and our cats go and like, the streets of gold, and we get that, right? But it's more than that. It's where God rules. There's no sin. There's no suffering. All tears wiped away. It's God, a true leader, uncorrupted leader ruling his people in community. And we're safe and everything is right and good as as it should be. So no one can go to that place, the kingdom of God, unless they're born again. Born again. So what is that? Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see his wheel spinning? He's like, how does that? Can you work out the biology of that for me? Because I don't really follow. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, the body is born once, but the spirit needs to be born again. What's born of flesh, that happens once but your spirit needs to be born. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You cannot be with God in eternity in his kingdom unless you are born again your soul being made alive. You are regenerated from a dead condition spiritually to alive. So the question must be on your minds, how is one born again? How is one born again? That's Nicodemus' question. It's a reasonable question. How does it happen? It's not through physical birth or rebirth. Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth. And so 1 John 5, 1 Tells us that whoever believes in Jesus, that he is the Christ, will be born again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's 1 John 5, 1. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, a little heads up in case you didn't catch this uh, throughout your growing up years in the church Christ is not Jesus' last name, He's not Jesus Christ. He is jesus the christ he that is a title that is a, miss, a title for messiah and ever since genesis 3 since the fall since waiting on adam and eve um being being uh, tempted by satan there was this promise of a messiah one who would come and crush the head of satan crush the enemy crush god's enemies crush the one who has led us into sin and death and whoever that would be, we, we there's an unfolding throughout all of Scripture of who that would be. Hundreds of prophecies that would talk about him as a man, him being born in the city of Bethlehem, him being born of a virgin, and, and who he would be as a ruler and a king. And so if you believe Jesus is that Messiah, that Christ, that one who would come and rescue his people, then you are born again. So How do we know if we've been born again? What does that look like? If you trust Christ, what does that start to look like? 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This idea that you were selfish and dead in sin following Satan, but love... Serving others, sacrificing for others, is of God. So if you have been born again of God, then you are loving others. You are loving the way that God loves because you now care about God and your soul is alive and it cares about the things of God. You will start to see love take over in your life. You will start to love other people. You start to love his people. If you sit, and I experienced this in other places I've been, but if you sit on this side, of the aisle knowing that there's someone on this side of the aisle that you hate or strongly dislike or really don't want to spend any time with and you're okay with that you do not love the way God loves because God loves the people on this side of the aisle and that side of the aisle I'm not talking politically I'm talking literally in this building if you're content to be unloving towards other believers then you're not displaying the love of God First John five one through five speaks of another evidence or another reality of what happens when we love God and we are born again. First John five verses one to five. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We read that already, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's the church. Verse two: by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments we care about what our father says right for and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the the world accepts the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We. The second thing I want us to see is if the first is that we love each other, the second thing is that we start to overcome sin. We start to have victory over sin. Because we start obeying God. We start caring ab- about God's word and his law and his uh, direction for our lives. And so we start to follow those directions. And when those directions start to look like turning away from sin, maybe lust or anger or whatever, selfishness or greed or whatever it is. You start to turn away from those things because you're starting to obey God. That evidence of being born again takes fruit. So when we are born again, we start to see that we love the church. And when we are born again, we start to see an overcoming of sin in our lives. And so when you... When you see that, you know God's working in you. There's hope there. You know that God is working when you overcome sin. And then 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. In other words, doesn't get content with letting sin live in their life. But he who has been born of God, I'm sorry, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him in other words God protects the person who's been born again when we're when our souls are made alive and we start to care about the things of God we start to love God's people we start to obey God and we have protection from God that the enemy ultimately won't have victory in our life he will not again rule us not ultimately there may be moments when we fall, we fail, where we go back to old habits, but he will not have victory over us. And so the response, what's the response to this knowledge? If the response to knowing our past is that humility, because we are not better than anyone, and the response then to new life given to us should be thankfulness. Thankfulness and joy. I want you to listen to this story about the Holocaust, short story here, it's, it's actually a news article, um, of, of a meeting between a Holocaust survivor and the man who helped free him, the American soldier that helped free him. This is the poignant moment when a man rescued from the hell he endured at the hands of the Nazis, met his savior, I use that term loosely, but and gave him a salute almost 70 years later. Joshua Kaufman first saluted his rescuer, Daniel Gillespie. Then he kissed his hand, and finally he fell to his feet, exclaiming, I have wanted to do this for 70 years. I love you. I love you so much. Kaufman, now 87, was a walking corpse on April 29, 1945, when U.S. Army soldier Gillespie, now 89 years old, marched in with his comrades to liberate the charnel house that was um, in Dachau con- concentration camp. Gillespie, that's, that's the American soldier, a machine gunner with the 42nd Rainbow Division, moved to block 11 of the infamous complex, which was the first camp built by the Nazis to house its enemies in 1933. By the time it was liberated, but, so by the time Dachau was liberated, thirty. 5,000 people had been murdered there in executions, in cruel medical experiments, starved, worked, and beaten to death. The first person he saw was this Hungarian Jew named Kaufman. He was hiding in the latrines with other prisoners, uncertain if the soldiers who arrived were liberators or a Nazi death squad sent to liquidate the camp. We were confined to the barracks by the guards, he says. This meant most of us were marked for death. Then I saw a white flag flying from the watchtower, and I realized then that the torture was at an end. When the Americans smashed in the door, my heart did somersaults. Gillespie helped the emaciated prisoner into the daylight and back into the land of the living. Both parted with tears in their eyes. Both believed they would never see one another again. And then you fast forward 70 years. Kaufman, who lost most of his family in the Holocaust, made it to Israel where he became a soldier himself who fought in, in the Six Days of War, in the Yom Kippur War. He later emigrated to America where he married, fathered three daughters, and became a self-employed plumber. Gillespie married, fathered eight children, and built a career for himself as a successful salesman. "'Amazingly, neither knew that they lived "'within an hour's drive of each other "'until a German documentary uh, crew came in "'and arranged a meeting, a reunion in, in, in California. "'Accompanied by his youngest daughter, Alexandra, "'to the meeting, Joshua said, "'I came out of hell into light. "'For that and to him I am eternally grateful.'" Gillespie, who had fought with his comrades through Europe to reach the gates of the Dachau camp, said, It was the most profound shock of my life. Its liberation changed my life forever. We could not understand it. I grew up in California where we had everything in abundance. We didn't get how people could let other people starve. They murdered them or just let them die. Again and again, the questions moved through my head, and at the same time, I was just incredibly angry. In that story, he ends it with this. He says, Kaufman had the last word on the beach of when these two met. He said, I have everything I wanted in life through him. This is the reason for my thankfulness. That is one of the most horrific events in human history is the Holocaust. I've been to different Holocaust museums. I, I you know, with my uh, somewhat of a Jewish heritage, I know More and more stories. I've heard Holocaust survivors speak. It's one of the most powerful stories telling I've ever heard. And again and again, I think to myself the gospel is pictured in rescue. The gospel is pictured. What God did for us is even far greater than what this soldier and what the American soldiers did for the Holocaust survivors in these camps. We've been rescued. Praise and joy and rejoicing should be what comes from our heart when we remember what we've been rescued from and what we've been rescued to. But more than thankfulness, more than thankfulness, you would never expect that Holocaust survivor to go back into that camp and want to live there, to live under those conditions So here's my question for you. How should knowing that our past was bleak and our present reality is joyous affect us right now? It should cause us to live out the rest of our future in freedom. If everything I've said to this point is true, then we do not have to live as if it is not true. Now that sounds simple and simplistic, but it's very difficult in reality to live as if we are free from the slavery to sin because we still have an enemy who wants to re-enslave us, as if he could. If it is not true, if everything I've said is not true, then we're still slaves to sin and death and Satan and selfishness. But if what Paul says is true, then we can live knowing we are no longer obligated to follow the rule of Satan or sin or selfishness. We can live knowing we have a hope of new life, both now and in eternity, we can stop submitting to sin. We no longer are ruled by it, so we no longer have to submit to it. So listen to these words from Paul to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, l- these words are significant. No temptation to sin has, a, has come into your life that is different than anyone else's life. It may not feel that way. We never th- seem to think that, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm having a horrible day, but everybody has horrible days. We always think, I'm having a horrible day. No one understands. But the reality is, Paul's saying, under the inspiration of God, let's leave that up there for a minute, is that nothing we experience Nothing we experience is unique. Our temptation to sin is common. He also goes on to say, God is faithful. He doesn't let us experience temptation without an opportunity to escape it. And what he means is that without the ability to escape sinning in response to it. So this is really important, right? Because it, he's not saying... There's no way that you don't have to experience the suffering or the temptation. What he's saying is you don't have to experience it and respond with sin as a response. So you just got cut off. You just got cut off on the highway, and and you're just irritated. And you just give that guy that one-finger salute because you're just like, ugh, he made me so mad. That's not true. Biblically speaking, Paul's saying, You're not a slave to that anger. You do not have to respond to the temptation to sin with more sin. We're free from that. You get into an argument on the way to church, and you're arguing about where you're going to eat for lunch, or whatever. I mean, the the list goes on. You have a medical issue, or some kind of situation where you're just physically weak, or or um, in pain regularly. One of my professors talked about how his wife, uh, his wife, his mom, when she was dying, she was in a lot of pain, and she was a believer. But the nurses would come in, and you know that th- when older folks, their veins aren't as as they don't pop as much, and so trying to find the spot to put in the IV, it gets really hard to find it, and they stick it, and then they don't get it, and they have to try again, and she's in pain already, and so it's like this nurse is just aggravating. More pain, you know? And she snapped at her. This this older dying Christian just snapped at the nurse, like idiot, you know, kind of thing. And nurse is, Oh so sorry, so sorry, and she leaves and my professor, he was a young guy at the time. He approached his mom, he's like, Mom, you're in pain. And it's making it hard to deal with that additional pain but you don't have to be angry. You don't have to respond in unloving words. No doubt that it's hard, but you're not a slave to that. And so the mom thought about it, you know, and she, the nurse comes back and she apologized. And But how many times do we go throughout our day and we're like, that person made me mad? Or I have an excuse to gossip this time because everybody's doing it, and if I don't, I'm going to look like the square, or I'm going to look like that stuck-up Christian. I don't want people to think I'm a stuck-up Christian, so I'll just make them think I'm a hypocritical Christian, I guess, by engaging in the gossip, right? We, we always, we're always looking through these hoops to jump through to justify our sin, but Paul is saying there is no temptation to sin. That's, over, that's uncommon to all of us, and God is faithful, so he has freed us we can walk through that situation, that tempting situation, and not give in. We can escape. And that's why he says, therefore, flee from idolatry. Of course, we serve idols. We serve them not quite like the Ephesians did in the days where they had temple to Artemis and, you know, little statues in their homes. Not quite like that. No, most of our idols are in our hearts. And it looks like status, pursuing status, or materialism, or the American dream, or comfort approval and happiness, control and power. We serve those heart idols on a daily basis. And unless we live out the freedom that we have as a result of being born again, we're going to fall into that temptation. First John says we will overcome our sin. So let us seek to overcome our sin. And we do this by living out a rhythm of continually trusting Jesus for what he's done for us and repenting from sin turning from sin the rhythm of faith and repentance faith in the gospel repentance from sin that is the rhythm of the Christian Bob Thune puts it this way as you learn to live a gospel-centered life remember that this is the essence of walking with Jesus repentance and faith are not steps on the path they are the path the work of God is to believe. So when we identify sin in our lives, whether and, and you can do this. This is not very challenging, right? To see your sin is, is is difficult, but it's not impossible. You can see your sin. You're an angry person. You're a lustful person. You're a joyless person. You're just a selfish person. Whatever it is for you that is not... that. You don't have multiple things to deal with, but there's general things we deal with. We need to fight it with faith and repentance. And so here are four questions I want to give you to help you work through fighting your sin and walking in victory, walking in the freedom you have. Ask yourself this question. How does my sin manifest? What does it look like? You know, angry on the, when you drive? Are you angry when you're hungry? You're the hanged person. Uh, are you angry when you're not well rested? Do you tend to lust later in the night? Struggle more when your spouse is away? What is it? Are you more joyless when you hear good things happening to your friends? You may be a little jealous and you struggle with joy. What is it? How does your sin manifest? Second question, how is your sin letting you down? How is it failing you? What is that anger doing for you? What is that lust turned out to do for you? Is it like giving you more joy and more peace and more hope? Or is it just kind of like constantly leaving you bitter or constantly leaving you never satisfied? What is your sin actually accomplishing for you? So how does it manifest? What is it doing for you? Third question: How does your sin undermine your ability to love God and others? If in our new freedom, in in now being alive to God and belief, being alive in Christ, frees us from sin, and the old life is a life of selfishness and a lack of love for God and others, how is the sin that we struggle with today causing that to, to, to kind of manifest to go backwards? How does your sin undermine your ability to love God and love others? It's really hard to love people when we're always thinking about ourselves. Or really hard to love people when I'm just mad at life all the time or down and discouraged all the time, never fighting that joylessness. And then fourth question, how does the gospel free you to love others well? How does the gospel free you to love others well? The past was bleak. Our present reality is joyous. And so we should live out our future in freedom. Let's pray. God, as we are looking at Ephesians and we look at a chapter like this and a passage like this, it's so um, inspiring on one hand to see that you've done something miraculous for us and and giving us life that we never had, in freeing us from something, not even realizing that we were in a worse spiritual condition than the man who was living in in a Nazi concentration camp. But somehow we are not motivated by that reality. We are not able to grasp fully on a daily basis that we are now free so god supernaturally give us the grace to remember the gospel to believe it more deeply and let it affect the way we live our lives cause us to live in faith and repentance in joy and in freedom help us to learn to love each other and stop being convinced and and led astray by the lies of the enemy that it's okay, it's okay to be mad at that person because they deserve it. It's okay to be joyless because I struggle with that or I'm just, I have that kind of personality. God, help us to fight the excuses and the lies that we are fed that keep us from living out in joy and freedom that you've died for that you rescued us to be with us today, God. We pray that in your name. Amen.